I was never a crier until I married and had daughters. Daughters made me a crier. Um, when Julie retired from Covenant School, they had a, a, a thing for her, and I blubbered through the whole thing. I totally embarrassed her, made a complete fool of myself, and I've tried never go back on campus again. Um, so, um, sorry for the storm clouds. Are we losing? Is the church losing? Are Christians losing in America? Certainly a lot of people think so. And, and you look at the statistics and, and our young adults, our children, uh, by, if you le- believe the statistics are leaving in massive numbers, not coming back. So the question is, are, are we losing? And, and if we are, if the attendance is looking that badly, then, then you have to ask your self why you know that we get to travel sometimes to go see our daughter in munich and and you go to western europe and there are unbelievable churches i mean buildings that literally take your breath away and and they're empty or they're used for social gatherings but they're not used for church and you talk to the typical western european and to them church is not an issue it's just irrelevant it's just not even a subject about which they think. So are, is that where we're going? Are we losing? Uh, you, you read the pundits, you read the stuff on social media, you hear the people with their hair on fire. Mine would be, but there's not enough. They, they, you, you get the sense that so many people are close to a full-bone planet panic about the decline of the American church and, and everybody figures out who is to blame. It's, you know, we can blame the seminaries because they haven't trained people well. We can blame the preachers, you know, uh, Barna Research. Uh, we call, we preachers call bad news Barna because all of their studies tell us how we preachers are failing the body of Christ. And, and that's not totally fair, but that's the way it reads. That's the way you feel about it when you read it, right? It's, oh man, you guys... Or we could blame God, but that never works well. Um, what, what do we do to impact the world with the message of Jesus Christ? And, and those of us who are a little long in the tooth, who are old, what, what's our strategy for the future as we see the end? I want to turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is one of the Apostle Paul's last letters. It was written to Timothy, his young protege. Uh, Timothy um, was raised by Eunice and Lois, his mother and grandmother, or grandmother and mother, I forget. Um, his dad was probably not a believer. Uh, Timothy was... Uh, incredibly significant in Paul's ministry but as you read chapters 1 and 2 one of the things you see is he was also a young man who struggled with lack of confidence with fear with um, he struggled and the apostle Paul is about to end his ministry and he writes this young protege and and he knows that his ministry is going to end and so he is writing to say this is how it's got to move forward this I'm about to leave. This is what you need to know. This is, and, and many times this book is treated as a, 
as a ministry manual for young pastors. And certainly it has value that way, but, but I think it's naive to say that's the only application. I think it is, it is a book about transitioning from one generation to the next. And so I think it is extremely apropos for where we are today. At Grace, but also in America. Because the body of Christ has got to figure out how to hand off the church, right? You, you can't, you can't, you know, someone has said that, uh, that uh, um, Christianity dies with every generation if it's not passed on. There's no, there's no second generation Christian. Every individual has to come to faith, which means every generation has to come to faith. You don't pass that on, right? You, you, you have to, every generation has to embrace it on its own so that we who are in the pew today have a responsibility to say, how are we going to ensure that it goes on? to the extent that we have anything to do with it. And I'd like to take you to one of my favorite passages in 2 Timothy. We'll start in verse 6 of chapter 1. For this reason, I remind you, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God. I love that phrase. I'm an old boy scout. Fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God didn't give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and caused us, called us to his holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And all of and this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, for this is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I'm not ashamed, because I know whom I believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. So what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus and guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. As you know, if you've been coming, this is the next to last of my series as I ride off into the sunset. We began with Isaiah 40 and the focus there is look at your God. The focal point of life begins and ends with your, your knowledge of God. Scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is, it is the beginning point, and if you start separately from there, then you, you build your worldview on an empty platform. Secondly, I went to the book of Proverbs because I think Proverbs is, is the gospel, the truth of God applied to the little things of life. And, and if, if we don't apply the gospel to all of life, then we hadn't applied the gospel. Too often we treat it as if it's this spiritual reality that's separate from the rest of our lives or the Bible doesn't have anything to say about how we live our lives and consequently we live, according to the book of Proverbs, foolishly instead of wisely. And Proverbs says the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. Then last week we looked at Romans chapter 1, the gospel. Because all of, of the Old Testament points to that, that one, that Passover lamb who fulfills all of the Old Testament requirements, all of its prophecies. Because when Jesus came, he is the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world. 
and he was resurrected on the third day, he demonstrated his victory over death. And that gospel is the core of what we believe. And it's interesting, when you look at verses 6 through the end of chapter 1, every one of those themes is in it. Every one of those themes is in that chapter because the apostle Paul keeps coming back to those. It comes back to that centrality of living your life well. Notice he said, live obedient lives. And even in verse 6 where he, he, or excuse me, verse 13, he says, when you heard from me, keep this pattern of sound teaching, sound doctrine. But notice what he says, with faith and love. It's applied doctrine. Way, way too often doctrine uh, has been used as a hammer to brutalize people. But, but in Scripture, that's not applied doctrine. Applied doctrine is always saturated with faith and love. And, and, and Timothy was taught by the Apostle Paul that, that if you've just read the right textbook, you haven't passed on the gospel because the textbook has to be seasoned with the fruit of the Spirit that enhances and demonstrates what the gospel is. In my opinion... The burden is not just to teach the truth, it's to live the truth because both speak volumes about what the truth is. And that's what he's saying here. So he, he talks to his young protege who's easily ashamed, easily fearful, easily timid and says, hey man, take what I have given you. Take what I have given you and don't ever waver with that message, the message of the gospel. Don't you dare fall into some other trap, whether it's religiosity or some other philosophy or anything else. The one thing the body of Christ has they offer to the world, there is literally only one thing that we uniquely offer to the world. That's the gospel. Everything else, everybody else can do. We are the only supplier of the gospel in the world. If we fail, it fails. If we Christians the big C church, if we who are called, call ourselves followers of Jesus, drop the ball on the gospel, it's dropped. And so Paul says to his young protege, son, grab hold of that and take it, that true teaching with faith and love. But verse chapter two is where I really want to go. Verse one, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is Christ Jesus. Love that phrase because we are called to be strong, but it's in the power of his grace. The two are always together with Paul. He, he never separates our responsibility from divine grace, and we should never do so either. Um, be, sticking to the gospel will always require strength. Why? Because it's not the world's message. Our gospel doesn't, it's foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1, it's, it's not the world's message. Even in the church, holding on to the gospel can easily, we can lose, uh, I grew up um, to the extent I did in East Texas and, and we would play baseball in a field and we were in the one ball league. You know what I mean by that? If somebody hit a ball into the weeds, we were done until we found the ball. I mean, that, so we not only got good at playing baseball, we got good at finding the ball in the weeds. If, if the body of Christ loses the gospel, our ball's in the weeds. 
our balls in the weeds. We are no longer in the game. So, so Paul says to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And verse 2 is where I'm headed. And the things you have heard me say, the Apostle Paul to Timothy in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men, three, who will also be qualified to teach others, four. Four generations. Four generations. Now, it's clear that the Apostle Paul is speaking to this as related to the leadership of the early church. And that's why some take this to be primarily related to leaders, pastors, elders. But I don't think anyone in their right mind would say that's the only application or there's only men or anything else. This is, this is a passage about how we as the body of Christ ensure that the next generation keeps going. And if I were to, if I had passed out little pieces of paper to you and a big chief, or a big chief notepad and a crayon so you could write, none of you know what a big chief notepad is. Um, that's how old people learned how to write on a big chief notepad. And I asked you, what, is, what does the church need to do to ensure that it keeps going? What are the characteristics that are vital? I think we, we would be inclined to say, well, we need preachers that'll preach the word. We need churches that'll stay true to the gospel. We need, you, you would click through all kinds of things, but I don't think those are the right answer. We need people in the pew to embrace the gospel and share it with others so that they can share it as well. We fall into this institutional mindset that allows us to be freed of the, rap- the responsibility we have to build the church. We love to blame the preacher, and heaven knows this preacher deserved plenty of blame. But at the end of the day, the failure or success of the message of the gospel will not ultimately depend on the effectiveness of preachers. It will ultimately depend on the spirit in the pew and the sense to which every individual who calls themselves a follower of Christ so embraces that gospel that they're not ashamed of it. It, it reshapes their worldview. It shapes their thinking. It changes their lives so that they're obedient. They live in conformity to the grace of God. And in living that way, they proclaim it as they go out into the world and they give that gospel away and that spreads through all the world and that is God's intention for how the societies are changed and cities are moved and families are reborn it's not all our job it's our job all of us to grab hold of this gospel and have the courage of our convictions and let it so shape our way of thinking and even more our way of feeling and our will and our desires and our affections so that, so that it so shapes what matters to us that it's the first box we check in everything we do. Does this conform to our job in sharing the gospel? Does this, is this consistent with having been made an ambassador of Jesus? Is this appropriate for me? 
I planned this series a long time ago. I didn't know what the timing of the announcement for the new guy was going to be, so that it really isn't intended to manipulate you. But it is absolutely true that if you put all of it on this pastor, we're done. We're absolutely done. And nobody knows that better than me because I know how frail I am. But you came alongside of me, and we together decided to serve Jesus. Many, um, not that you started with me, but you, you chose to join me in building this church. You chose to join me in building this building. You chose to join me in discipling our kids and serving in children's ministry and, and giving to student ministry and, and going on mission trips. You, sure, you chose to join us as a community that we all bought in and accept a responsibility to take what we had been given and give it to the next generation with the hope that they'll give it to another. Um, see, I, I, I think we, we all have this tendency to think institutionally, you know, it, it, and, and we're all, like I said, we're all blaming everyone. You know, the church has failed, and the, this has failed, and that has failed, and, and, and Certainly there's some truth to that, but let me challenge you. I'm going to give you an assignment. Go home and write on a piece of paper why you follow Jesus. What were the influences that brought you to follow Jesus? And you know what you'll find? People. People. Uh, let me show you. Uh, I was baptized by a short, appropriately, Presbyterian minister who read in seven languages was one of the founders of Dallas Seminary. I didn't know that until I was working for the seminary. And every Sunday he gave me a peppermint after the sermon. Little thing. I was raised by mom and dad. My dad was, was not a guy who was up front. He, I never heard him pray in public. But man, I've told you about his integrity. And my mom was the more outspoken one and the more the student of the Bible and, and boys did she pray for the knucklehead God had given her through her womb. Um, and, um, and then there were, I was in a community like this one, but much smaller, a little Presbyterian church. And, and, and I knew that the other families in that church took responsibility for me because I knew if they found me messing up, I would pay for it whether that I didn't have to get back to mom and dad. One example of that, uh, Bill McKenzie was an elder here. Bill started Pine Cove. His daddy was Alex McKenzie. And Alex McKenzie was a uh, banker in Dallas, in Tyler. And, and the land for the first Pine Cove camp was on Alex's farm. He was a piece of work. The, the football field on the original Pine Cove camp has no topsoil on it because Alex sold it. Um, when I was in college, I, I trusted him so much, I went by his office at a bank. He was on several bank boards by then, and I, I, I woke him up. He was asleep in his very expensive suit on sofa cushions on the floor, and I woke him up because he was that age. I'm looking forward to it. And... I'll never forget it. He said, Andy, if you ever need anything, 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 you can call me. I'll make it happen. 
Can you imagine a man of influence and wealth saying to a blue-collar college student, I'll do anything for you? He died before he ever had a chance to do anything. But still, it meant a lot. Um, then God sent Mike Fisher, who was for two hours a week my youth pastor. And because of Mike's ministry, six of us went to seminary. And because of Mike's ministry, I became a pastor. And because of Mike's ministry, I became your senior pastor. And there are countless others, many of whom I've done their funeral here, who touched my life. The church didn't make me, people did. And I bet you that if you took the time to sit down and write your list, you'd see the same thing. In fact, I've always thought it'd be fun to write a book just for my benefit that says, I've been loved. Because that's what God does. God brings this matrix of people that come into our lives at different points in time and they, they, they've they're all feeble, they're all broken, they're all sinners, but they hold on to that part of the gospel they grasp and they, they share it by word and deed and they love us through that power and that God uses that to reshape us. And then that is how the message of Christ is expanded through the world. Men and women, we can hire the best pastors, we can elect the right officials, whoever you think they are, don't get me in that argument. We, we can do whatever else we want to do. But if we don't do this, we're a clanging gong and a resounding cymbal. We, you and I, every one of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, have a responsibility to take the things that we've learned from others and pass them on. And that's when we're most powerful. And he then uses the analogy of a, a farmer and a soldier and a something else, or athlete, and says every one of them has to sacrifice. It will take sacrifice to do it. But you know what I found? Nothing good comes without sacrifice. And in the last chapter he says, but keep your focus on Jesus. I've got a confession to make. Um, I don't remember many lectures from seminary. I, I, do you? Do, I mean, I, I worked full time. Um, Julie kept having babies. She was just out of control. Um, <laughs> two, well, I had three, actually. So, um, um, so I would work at the seminary and come home spend time with the kids, then talk to Julie and start studying at 10, study till 2, and then get up at 7 the next morning. And I don't remember a lot of that. I had one class where I literally had two friends that woke me up every year, every, every section. I won't tell you the name of the prof, but if you heard, you would understand. And um, I didn't learn much of the major prophets. That's all I'm going to say. But um, one lecture that has shaped my life was by John Hanna. John was... Uh, church history prof. He was the janitor at Grace Bible Church when he was a seminary student. Um, it was on what he called the Layman's Prayer Revival of 1860. Around 1860, some businessmen in New York decided that they needed to pray. So they met at lunch in a church-built room and started praying at lunch. And then, then they started doing it every day. And then other people started joining them. 
And then it started spreading to other churches. And then it spread to other cities. And then it spread to other countries. And, and John had a wonderful article about it in an old bib sack, which is the seminary's journal, uh, or the church historian has a horribly dull book about it. Um, but they estimated there's never been a revival in the history of the world that affected church attendance as much as that one. And there's not a single preacher associated with it. I personally believe it was part of what laid the groundwork for the abolition of slaves because the American people turned back to what it meant to go, follow God. And even, even, even in the South, it, it created a, a revival that, that um, is inexplicable any other way. And there wasn't a preacher who could take credit for it. God really messed up with that one. People just prayed. People took responsibility. People embraced the gospel and shared it with someone else. And in the history of the church, there's never been another time like it. Are we near the end in America? Are we near the end in this church? Are we near the end in, in the, with the gospel? No. God will do his work. But to the extent that our nation and our city and our church is a part of the God solution, it will be not when preachers preach well. It will be when pew sitters accept their responsibility to join the preacher and take in the things that they've heard and seen and share it with others so that they can teach others. Are you worried about your kids? Are you worried about your grandchildren? Are you worried about the next generation? This is how we do it. We do it. We do it. We are all his army. Let's pray. Father, we confess that sometimes we're timid and maybe even ashamed of the gospel and don't live it or don't tell it like we've been called to do. Father, we confess that we're really good at pointing the finger but not very good at doing our part. Father, we know that there is nothing too big for you. We know that your spirit is limitless in power, and we know that the gospel changes lives and people and cities and countries and worlds. Make us not only believe it, but cause us to live it and teach us to give it. In Jesus' name, amen.